0: To In the Weeds with Nicole Asquith, exploring the way culture shapes our relationship to the natural world. Deity, avatar, victim, survivor. The coyote is all of these things and more, according to my guest, Dan Flores, author of the New York Times bestseller, Coyote America, A Natural and Supernatural History. Historian and author of many books on the American West, Dan Flores grew up in Louisiana, where he encountered pioneer coyotes as a kid. His work cuts across the natural and cultural history of the American West, going back to 5.3 million years ago, when the family Canidae that gives us wolves, jackals, foxes, coyotes, all the animals in the dog family first emerged, to the ongoing cultural battles in which coyotes are embroiled today. Flores' work on coyotes dovetails nicely with my previous episodes on wolves and opens a new, distinctly American chapter in this story. I spoke to Dan Flores remotely at his home outside Santa Fe, New Mexico. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me.
1: It's my pleasure. I always like talking about coyotes.
0: Oh, good. They're one of my favorite topics as well, and I've learned a lot of things from reading your book, some rather disturbing things, I must say.
1: Yeah, I know. Uh, Unfortunately, one has to tell the whole story.
0: Yeah. So I'm curious, you've written a lot about the American West. Was coyotes always on your radar or something you wanted to write about? Or was there something in particular that inspired you to write the book?
1: Well, I probably began thinking about doing some sort of coyote work. When I was just a kid growing up in Louisiana, when they were showing up, Uh, in the state for the first time. And I thought that was a really pretty marvelous thing to have happen. But um, what really kind of set me in motion to thinking about them again was, I don't know, probably seven or eight years ago, I began working on a book, which actually came out about the same time that Coyote America did, called American Serengeti, The Last Big Animals of the Great Plains. And it was a book about this marvelous bestiary of creatures that we had in north america up until really about 120 years ago these vast herds of bison enormous numbers of gray wolves grizzly bears pronghorn antelope bighorn sheep all these animals that were out on the american great plains and sort of constituted this analog to the creatures of the serengeti or the masai mara or the veld of south africa and so Hence the name of the book, American Serengeti. And one of the things that when I was working on that book that occurred to me was that almost the only animal that really survived this enormous destruction, I mean, I argue in American Serengeti that the destruction of all these animals on the American Great Plains between about 1820 and 1920 constituted the largest single destruction of wildlife discoverable anywhere in In world history. But the one animal that survived, and lots of people took note of it at the time, too, at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th centuries, was the coyote. And so I kind of emerged from doing that book with the thought that I should write a book very specifically to try to tell the sort of the biographical arc of this particular animal that has uh, been in North America for so long and that survived so many instances in the past, so many extinction scenarios that coyotes survived. The Pleistocene extinctions when we lost mammoths and saber-toothed cats and dire wolves and camels and all our great horse herds, coyotes survived that. And then they survived again at the end of the 19th century when we were killing off all these animals Uh, in the American West. So it kind of gave me the idea that I probably should ultimately write a book about those animals that I've been fascinated with since I was 12 years old.
0: One of the things I was struck by in your book, too, was when you talk about the prairie, what an evocative landscape that is, what an evocative world that is, and how one of the reasons it may have such deep resonance for us is because it goes back to humans earliest experiences in a similar landscape in in africa
1: well yes i mean that's, that's clearly one of the arguments uh, i developed as a result of working on american serengeti that kind of translated pretty directly into coyote america is this this body of animals that made up the creatures of the great plains and of course the coyote story is kind of uh enmeshed to me with the American Great Plains because that was as far eastward during the historical period, at least, that coyotes ranged. And when Americans first encountered them, that's where they were. I mean, when Lewis and Clark first saw coyotes and puzzled over what they were and gave them the name prairie wolves, that's what they were entering for the first time was the American Great Plains. And beginning to see... A whole suite of animals uh, of which the coyote kind of became the iconic creature for them of this change in the ecology of North America.
0: So let's talk a little bit about just the word itself, coyote. First of all, it's a word that connects us to a deep American past, if I understand it, because we get it from an Aztec language. How do you pronounce the, the name of the Aztec language that it comes from?
1: The Aztec language is called uh, Nahuatl.
0: Nahuatl, okay.
1: And, uh, I mean, it's spelled N-A-U-H-U-T-L. You'd think it would be Nahuatl, but it's uh, it's Nahuatl is the pronunciation of it. And uh, the L that appears on the end of the coyote version that comes out of the Nahuatl language C-O-Y-O-T-L is silent. And so evidently the way Aztec speakers pronounce the name of the animal, and this is the name from which our modern version coyote is derived after it passes through several different languages, they apparently pronounce it as a two-syllable name coyote seems to have been the, the version that the Aztecs use. But when the Spaniards conquered Mexico and conquered the Aztec Empire and began assembling a glossary of the terms that Aztecs used for the natural history uh, of Mexico and the deserts farther north. The Spaniards Hispanicized that word and made it into a three-syllable word, which they pronounced coyote. And Spanish speakers in places like New Mexico and California will still pronounce the name of the animal that way, coyote. But that three-syllable name then was taken into English by English speakers, and it ultimately assumed two different forms, which, uh, and this has a very interesting history. I, of course, describe it in a couple of places in Coyote America, where one group of people listening to the Spaniards pronounce the name of the animal coyote ultimately anglicized it to coyote. Other people who heard that pronunciation, evidently the Spanish pronunciation, evidently decided that it was a little bit too fancy for an animal that they regarded as sort of a day-to-day occurrence. And so they called the animal coyote the second version with two syllables is mostly a kind of a rural, southern, midwestern, and western way of saying uh, the name of the animal. Coyote is, you hear it quite commonly used in the ranching community in the American West, for example. Almost no one uh, who comes out of the rural West will use the term coyote. But elsewhere in the country, on the East Coast, on the West Coast, Uh, More generally in the Southwest, everybody uses the three-syllable version, coyote.
0: So so now you, you talk about the fact that now that's become politicized.
1: Yes, it's kind of become politicized in a way. As one of my friends said to me when I was telling him about the research that I was doing into the use of these two names, he said, well, you know, nobody who shoots one of these animals or traps it or poisons it ever calls it a coyote they only call it a coyote. And so it's almost as if the people who regard the animal as vermin, as a varmint, as something to be shot on sight, they wouldn't be caught dead calling it a coyote. They only refer to it as a coyote.
0: It's funny how charged those things (laughs) become. So one of the things that really appealed to me about your book is the way that you explore the way that the coyote and all of our responses to the coyote, what it tells us about ourselves. Um, You use this term avatar. I was already kind of in that direction in the two episodes that I did on wolves, where I was focused more on European cultural history and the ways in which humans intersected with wolves and how we have projected our vices and virtues onto them. Um, And so it was really interesting for me to follow that up with your book, first of all, with a different animal, a different cultural context, but you also see the ways in which we project ourselves and have for for many, many years. So one question I had for you is why the term avatar? Why did you choose that as a way of describing this relationship?
1: Well, there probably are other words that would work, no doubt, but um, I think I used avatar primarily because of the currency of the term in the digital world, in gaming and in computer use. So it seemed to, to me to be a more current kind of term that people would immediately identify in, in gaming and in the computer world. Of course, the avatar is the stand-in for the person at the keyboard in the in the digital world. And it seemed to me as I thought about how to express this idea that clearly goes back to the beginning of native stories about Coyote. I mean, that this oldest literature in North America, which is about this semi-deity figure uh, called Coyote who creates the world and who is the primary literary figure in this ancient North American literature. It seemed to me that the role that Coyote played, Coyote with a capital C, played in that literature was that of an avatar. He was a stand-in for human beings. And I mean, one of the arguments that I developed in the book, and I will say is an original argument, because what I encountered when I read uh, the mass of literature that's out there about these coyote stories was the common referent of the coyote stories being trickster stories. And it it appeared to me as I read scores and scores of those stories and tried to figure out exactly how I was going to write a chapter that somehow encapsulated all of this, that in fact, we would kind of missed the boat by calling these stories in this literature trickster stories, because what was the really important part of the stories, although many of them did involve a trick, But it wasn't the trick that was the important thing, nor that anyone, including Coyote, played a trick. It was why the trick worked that was important. And what I realized when I had that insight about these stories was that what these stories actually are about, are they're about human nature. They're using the figure, the literary figure of Coyote as a stand-in for human beings, and so All the fixes that he gets into, all the the fallible tricks that he falls for are invariably a result of the characteristics that we have as human beings, and particularly characteristics like our selfishness or our lustfulness or our inclinations towards narcissism. And so the stories are really designed to do that, to, to tell Us And to tell the listeners 10,000 years ago, sitting around a campfire in the winter, listening to people tell these stories to them, they were designed to illuminate human nature and to sort of help us understand how we could avoid some of these common pitfalls. And it seemed to me that what Coyote was doing in those stories was he was serving as an avatar for the human population. He was a stand in for us. When that idea came to me as I was working on the book, it suddenly uh, sort of illuminated a whole host of other episodes in this Coyote biography that I was telling, where Coyote does the same thing. And of course, when I get towards the end of the book, one of the, the accounts that I describe is Wiley Coyote in the cartoons functioning once again. As a human avatar, a kind of an everyman who is teaching, I mean, people sitting down on Saturday morning watching uh, the Coyote Roadrunner cartoons, you probably never think about this, but what you're actually learning about is obsession, humiliation, and as Coyote sort of evolves into a more sophisticated character, you start learning from those cartoons about how to be a savvy consumer in a modern Society where big corporations are attempting to sell you things, and of course, in Wiley Coyote's case, he becomes this very gullible consumer of the products of the Acme Corporation. So it was once again this kind of avatar, this stand-in for for human beings, and I mean, those are kind of the bookends. I found very a, a great many other instances, of course, where I describe coyotes as being very similar, sort of a, an animal in the mirror for human beings throughout their biographical story. But those two bookends, the native stories and Wiley e. Coyote, I think serve to illustrate that point pretty well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. W- what do you think it is about canid predators or perhaps just predators more broadly that make them a particularly compelling surrogate for humans?
1: Well, I think there are two things. I I have a phrase somewhere early in the book, I think in the introduction, about predators functioning as kind of the two-faced god for humans. And much of this came from reading the work of the biologist Hans Kruk, who argues that because of our own evolutionary story, where we began emerging into consciousness as kind of scavengers of the kills of big predators. And then through primarily through our intelligence and our technological, our growing technological abilities, we become hunters in our own right. We sort of have in our genetic memories, this dual role that we played of being prey for large predators and also being predators ourselves where We very carefully watched what other predators did. We learned techniques for hunting particular animals from watching how wolves hunted, for example. And so Kruk argues, and I I think he's absolutely right, I, I think I saw this repeatedly as I was working on the coyote book, we seem to be, we humans seem to be more fascinated and look longer and more intently at predators, probably with this sort of dual role in mind for ourselves uh, as both prey at one point in time and also as competitor predators ourselves. So we, we watch them very carefully. I think it's no accident, for instance, that the first animal we domesticate uh, is not an ungulate. It's not a sheep. It's not a goat. It's not a horse. The first animal that we domesticate is a wolf and um uh, so i think our our fascination with the canids comes in part because we recognize ourselves in them their pack structure the fact that they clearly impart culture to their pups as they're raising them up all these things i think humans saw as as canine as as similar to the way we conduct ourselves in the world
0: In Chapter 1 of Coyote America, Flores introduces us to Coyote with a capital C, a deity, and the protagonist in the oldest known stories from North America. From the Wichitas of the Southern Plains to the Navajos of the Southwest, to the Crows of the Northern Plains, and even the Aztecs, native peoples of North America recounted stories of coyote, sometimes known as Old Man Coyote, or occasionally Old Woman Coyote. I was wondering if you could read just the first paragraph of chapter one for us, Old Man America, because I would like to talk about The Coyote with a capital C.
1: Sure, I'd be happy to do that. That was a very fun chapter to write. It was, in a way, one of the most difficult ones, as I said, because... I had so many of those stories, I, it, it took me a long time to figure out exactly what to do with that chapter. And as you know, I finally resolved on telling just four of them in my own words in order to make the point of the chapter. Okay, so Old Man America begins this way. In the remotest time of early North America, after he had molded mud from the ocean bottom into mountains, plains, and forests, to create the essential topography of the continent. Coyote was going along. He had placed stars in the sky, some as pictures, some as a latticed road across the night, some tossed willy-nilly into the inky black. He had arranged the year into four seasons and he had populated the world with humans. As the special helper of the creator, who seemed not especially interested in any of this hands-on creation work himself, Coyote had killed monster after monster on behalf of his human charges, whom he had then located in good, monster-free spots across America. He had released animals like buffalo from underground, and admittedly, with a few unlucky mistakes, placed salmon and other fish in many of the rivers. He had invented penises and vaginas and taught humans what to do with them. The first technology in the form of fire came from Coyote. Then, not without some remorse, he had introduced death into the world.
0: this is great. Uh, I love the humor about it. I love, for instance, the line, He had placed stars in the sky, some as pictures, some as lattice road across the night, some tossed willy-nilly into the inky black. Just the idea that there's this humor that's embedded into the creation is very, I don't know, it it has a potency to it. It speaks to a cultural reality in and of itself. Do do you know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, of course I agree, which is, you know, unquestionably one of the reasons I selected the stories that I did for that chapter. I mean, you know, a couple of them are really funny. And, uh, I mean, Coyote he's coyote is such an edgy kind of figure and has such a kind of a nonchalance about survival that um, it's difficult not to think of the animal and in all these cultural manifestations as funny. I mean, he's, he she both both genders are really comic in much of uh much of the history of north america
0: yeah so can you explain this uh, the role that he has in relation to the creator you write about it somewhere else as well so can you flesh that out for us a little bit what what is his relationship what's the concept of the creator at work here
1: Well, in in these stories, and I'm I'm basically summarizing the take of of many different cultures. I mean, more than three dozen cultures uh, of native people have coyote stories. And so there are a lot of different versions and a lot of variations. But the common theme about coyote's particular role is that he's not the first cause deity, Uh, There is a first cause deity, but the first cause deity tends not to be, once things are set in motion, tends to not be much interested in the hands-on aspect of dealing with earth and earthly life. And so, I mean, one of the things you have to recognize about, about the coyote figure in these ancient stories is that He is a Paleolithic God. Now, as people coming out of the Western tradition, the Western historical tradition, most of our deities from Islam, from Judaism, from Christianity are Neolithic deities. They come from a later period in the human story when human beings are uh, herders of animals and planters of crops. And so the deities we're familiar with are deities from this agricultural Neolithic world, largely from the Middle East. Coyote is a deity figure from an earlier time in human history and before agriculture is ever invented. And so he has a kind of a, in a way, a sort of a hunter-gatherer uh, cast about him. And as a Figure who the first cause deity wants to go down to earth and actually interact with the human beings who are living on earth and with the other creatures as well. You could almost say that Coyote is kind of an early Jesus figure. He's never described as the son of God, as the son of the first cause, just sort of a helper. But In a way, because this is a story that's older than the Neolithic Islamic, Judaic, and Christian deity traditions. I mean, it's older than the Gilgamesh epic, in fact. It may be that the idea of a figure from the first cause deity who then goes down to earth and interacts with humans, sort of the way we all assume that Jesus or Mohammed did, Comes from these Paleolithic stories of of earlier gods, and that's kind of who Coyote functions as. But as I argue uh, in this chapter, I mean, <laughs> he's uh, in contrast to, to say a Jesus of Nazareth, who is a you know presented in the Bible as this perfect in the New Testament as this perfect figure to whom all humans look up and they look up to and who they want to try to emulate in that kind of perfection. Coyote offers a completely different kind of presentation uh, of who the deity is. I mean, he, in fact, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, he's no perfect deity by any means. In fact, he is in a lot of ways sort of the worst of us. He takes human nature and, and exaggerates it in every way. And so he becomes equally a teaching deity, but uh, not a deity who is offering up perfection to try to emulate.
0: I'm really intrigued by this idea of a hunter-gatherer deity as well, because the advent of agriculture just seems like such an important piece of the puzzle that I'm sort of trying to put together (laughs) one of the things I feel like that keeps coming back over and over again, and it's embedded in the word culture itself is the role of agriculture in sort of shaping a modern concept of the world. So I'm curious, do you, do you have any more thoughts on what, what do you mean when you say sort of a hunter gatherer deity or figure?
1: Well, I mean, if you think of it this way, when we humans decide that predators like coyotes, wolves, lions are our enemies is when we start hurting domesticated animals. In the period before that, and I think this is one of the explanations for why right down to the, to the time when Europeans arrive in North America, coyotes and wolves still are regarded as sacred animals by indigenous people in North America, is that while indigenous people had gone through an agricultural revolution, they were planting crops and started doing so a couple of thousand years before Europeans arrived. We In North America, we did not have any domesticated animals. We didn't have the equivalent of sheep and goats and hogs and so forth that people domesticated. So domestication only extended to plants and not to animals in north america which meant that wolves and coyotes get this free pass for another several thousand years in north america until europeans arrived with domesticated animals in tow where they're they're not regarded as the enemy of american or of economies of human economies they're simply regarded as the sacred animals that you attempt to learn from And so that's one of the things when Europeans arrive and bring domesticated animals along that changes the story for for coyotes pretty significantly and, of course, for wolves as well.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you have an analogous thing happening in Europe, right? If you go back, say, to Nordic mythology, you have the figure of the wolf as this potent figure that is looked up to or emulated as a figure of the hunter, a figure of prowess, right? And then, of course, it, it shifts
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. So I'm curious, this is going back a little bit, but can you talk a little bit about the Aztec version of this? Is there a link between, because you describe how there are several coyote gods in the Aztec pantheon. Do you see a link between that and the coyote in the North American tribes?
1: Well, I'm not, and I have to say, I'm not, clear in my own mind which group of people initially developed the idea of coyote deities. My suspicion is that that probably takes place at the end of the Pleistocene 10,000 years ago and probably in Western North America, what is now the Western United States, as all these big Pleistocene animals are uh, are vanishing and becoming extinct, and coyotes are are one of the creatures that's not only surviving, but uh, I think probably what attracted the attention of Native people was that it's an animal that clearly is surviving by its intelligence, by its wits, and I think that attracted people to it because that's sort of the same way that human beings have managed to to do so well in our expansion around the globe. So I think probably the origin of Coyote as a deity, and this is mostly speculation because we don't have very much at all to go on, probably comes from somewhere in what is now the Western United States. And those stories through trade and through contact between the peoples of, of uh, say, the valley of the high valleys of Mexico and the Southwest. And there was obviously a very strong and active trade connection going on between the Aztecs and the Mayans, uh, even the people of the Caribbean, and the, the people in the Southwest, the Pueblo people in particular. I mean, all kinds of trade connections are visible in the archaeological record, from turquoise to parrots coming up from Central America. So I think the stories probably came from the North down to the people of Central Mexico, but the people of Central Central Mexico and, and obviously the Aztecs in particular really embraced them. And as you noted, I mean, in their pantheon of cosmic figures, they have several different coyote gods. The coyote, for example, is the the Aztec god of poetry, and of course poetry is a kind of a verbal song, and since coyotes are are song dogs, I mean, that's a pretty obvious connection. The Aztecs also, I think, the, the argument I think is sound that I make, that they saw coyotes as sharers of their urban spaces. I mean, there was, as I say in the book, there was actually a suburb of Tenochtitlan, the Aztec capital, that was named the, the suburb or the place of the coyotes. And the Aztecs did regular rituals and ceremonies dedicated to coyotes. They dressed themselves up in costumes with erect ears and long noses and coyote tails. And so there, the Aztec integration of Coyote as a deity, as a multiplicity of deities into their cosmic pantheon, I think was pretty complete. But I suspect that the origins of the idea lay to the north, probably somewhere in Western America and ended up diffusing southward to the Aztecs.
0: So you talk about the natural history of canids and where coyotes came from, which is fascinating. Not sure I can reconstruct it all (laughs) off the top of my head, but my understanding is that not only do coyotes come from the Southwest, but in fact, the whole canid family originates from there. Am I right about that?
1: Yeah, you are right about that.
0: Can you give us kind of the synopsis of where it comes from and and how they sort of diverge and then come back together again?
1: Well, so the the canid family is one of the great families of animals that springs directly from North American evolutionary origins. I mean I'm probably more conversant with this now than I was even when I wrote Coyote America because I'm the next book I'm doing which is contracted to W.W. W. Norton is called Wild New World and it's sort of the big picture story of the evolution of life in North America following the, the Chicxulub impact, the impact of the asteroid that destroyed the dinosaurs 66 million years ago. That particular asteroid hit, as you know, in the northwestern Yucatan Peninsula, and it was flying through the atmosphere, coming at a low angle from the south. So when it hit on the edge of the Yucatan although its effects ended up being global. It killed creatures all over the world. I mean, it absolutely fried life in North America 66 million years ago. And so it's like the tape of North American life had to start over again. And it's a pretty interesting story as to how it goes. I mean, we end up, North America ends up being the destination for animals that migrate across the land bridges out of Asia and also out of Europe. But we we basically spawn several distinctive families of animals in that period. The camels, for example, the horses, and the canids. And the canid family has its origin 5.3 million years ago during the Pliocene. Uh, and there are, of course, uh, predecessor groups. But the family canidae, as biologists, as taxonomists designate it, emerges 5.3 million years ago, probably in the southwestern United States and northern Mexico. And out of that family comes all of the canids of the globe. I mean, all of the wolves, all of the jackals, all the wild dogs, the dingoes, all the canids that ultimately are found across Earth come out of North America 5.3 million years ago. And then some of them end up crossing the land bridges into Asia, into Africa, into Europe. And in the case of gray wolves, uh, what makes their story kind of interesting in the North American uh, mammalian story is that gray wolves, after a couple of million years of evolution in North America, they basically crossed the land bridge into Asia and Europe and evolve for another couple of million years in that part of the world before they start returning to North America, once again, crossing the Bering Land Bridge back into North America about 30,000 years ago. So the four big subspecies of gray wolves that we have, depending on what biologists you, whose leads you follow, either four or five of them, They all come in different waves of migrations between about twenty-five and 35,000 years ago, coming back into North America. But meanwhile, one of the animals that had remained in North America for the entire period were the ancestors of coyotes and jackals. And about a million years ago, some of those animals left and ended up in Africa, and the Middle East, and those became the jackals of the old world, particularly the golden jackal, which separated from the North American coyote line about a million years ago. But the ancestors of coyotes remain in North America, and about eight hundred to 900,000 years ago, we think they evolved into a close a relationship to their modern form. They may have been the early animals of Canis latrans, uh, might have been a subspecies that was a little more robust, a little larger, had bigger jaws and teeth. But starting about 800,000 years ago, that particular line in North America would ultimately become the, the line of animals that we now call Canis latrans, coyotes. And so coyotes, I mean, this is an argument that I... You know, once again, as I was doing this research and various insights were occurring to me, it made me realize, okay, this is an animal whose roots are exclusively American. They didn't go anywhere else. They remained here. And uh, as you know, I have a section in one of the chapters of the book where I describe the coyote's howl, its yodeling howl, as being the original national anthem of North America, which they and their ancestors have been howling in North America for millions of years now. But one of the things this story does is, you know, and and when you get to the end of the book, it becomes kind of crucial to have absorbed this evolutionary context, because one of the things that's happening in canid history and biology today as coyotes have spread out of the West and gotten into the East and gotten among remnant wolf populations, red wolves and Eastern wolves in the East, one of the things that's become evident is that they are able, coyotes are able to hybridize with these particular wolf populations. And the reason they're able to do so is because these wolf populations, red wolves and Eastern wolves, also come out of this same line of canids that didn't leave North America. And so their relationship with coyotes is close enough in time, maybe only a million years or even less in the past, that there are no behavioral barriers to coyotes and red wolves hybridizing and having offspring. Meanwhile, out here in the West, with the gray wolves that left North America and then came back about 30,000 years ago, during that separation, behavioral barriers emerged between them and coyotes. And coyotes and gray wolves in the American West do not hybridize. So it's kind of, um, you have to almost know this, this long evolutionary story to understand what's happening around us in the in the world, in the United States right now.
0: So I feel like we have to get to the to the really rough sections of your book <laughs> where you detail just the amazing efforts to species cleanse <laughs> I think is the term you use at one point yeah. the coyote before we get there so the early encounters of European Americans with coyotes they seem to have been curious and a little bit confused as to who these prairie wolves as they called them were and then, Before they were seen as a threat to agriculture, they were part of the fur industry, right? And you talk about how coyote pelts were used as money at one point. Is that because they were so common, because so many of them were being killed?
1: Yeah. Yeah, their pelts were used as a medium of exchange uh, in the West in the 19th century, um, because they were, uh, as you said, they were part of the, the fur trade, of the period. And uh, I mean, and the, it was a fur trade, by the way, that was propelled largely by the invention of poisons, of strychnine in particular.
0: Strychnine, a poison made from the seed of an East India fruit, will turn out to be, as Flores puts it, a key tool of biological warfare against the natural world in America for much of the 19th and the 20th centuries. Here's his description of what it does. Strychnine was horrifically deadly in tiny amounts, usually administered in the form of white tablets. Within 10 to 20 minutes, a tab of strychnine gulped down as part of a predator's meal wreaked havoc on the central nervous system, launching the victim into waves of wrenching, convulsive cramping. A truly shocking sight when anyone was around to see it, which was rare. Asphyxiation was the cause of death, but strychnine seized living animals with such violence that it left a characteristic signature, dead bodies with rigidly arced spinal columns and straight, motionless tails, spotted at distances across the prairies as toppled over question marks. It wasn't until the 1960s that it began to occur to some people that the poisons littering the country, including new forms of chemical warfare that had been invented during World War II, might have undesired consequences. We were talking about the... Incredible warfare that has been waged against the coyote. One of the things that is sort of hard to process about that is the fact that in the America of the late 19th century, the early 20th century, there was this idea that an ideal nature would include no major predators. You write about the effort in Yellowstone, for instance, to get rid of all wolves, mountain lions, bears, coyotes. It, it's so hard to square with our. Idea of nature today. How how do you account for that? How do you account for this idea that this would be a great thing to do to just eradicate all predators and then everything would be just perfect?
1: <laughs> well, I think we uh, we brought those ideas with us from Europe, where we had attempted to do that very thing to expel every predator of whatever species bears wolves from life among people living in France or Spain or England or the Netherlands. And so it seems to me that we do it in the United States without really much questioning whether this was the proper thing. I mean, one of the shocking aspects of this story to me is that We Americans decide, and we don't just decide, we actually implement plans. We decide on plans to wipe out wolves without ever doing any kind of scientific research whatsoever into those animals to try to figure out what role they played in American nature. The idea was simply that, well, we know what wolves did in Europe, and so this is what they're going to do to the, the colonial settler societies that are springing up in North America. So we're going to get rid of them. And in the case of coyotes, since we don't, we don't come out of Europe with a preconceived notion about coyotes because we don't have them on hand, uh, which is, uh, as you know, one of the reasons I argue that for a good bit of the 19th century, at least we're trying to figure out exactly what we think about them. I mean, we know that their fur makes pretty good pelts for the fur trade. But beyond that, we're not quite sure exactly what to do about coyotes or how to think about them until Mark Twain, of course, comes along and writes this comic and very disparaging account of coyotes in his bestseller, Roughing It, in 1873. And from that point on, Americans seem to have embraced the idea that coyotes were just a smaller version of wolves, and they were just kind of breathing up good air until we could figure out some way to wipe them out. So we have this notion that um, we try to implement across the American landscape in general, and even in parks like Yellowstone and, and Glacier National Parks, where the only animals that we're going to allow to remain in those parks are the ones that People have long regarded as kind of game animals. We'll let mule deer and we'll let elk and we'll let pronghorn antelope and all these ungulates survive in a place like Yellowstone, but we're going to wipe out all the predators. And what's kind of striking about that to me, I mean, I still marvel at it every time I I think about it at any length, is that it doesn't occur to ecologists and biologists of the age until well after the process is in motion to wipe out all these predators that, wow, you know, we're in a continent where for thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years before we ever showed up, somehow all these animals had managed to interact perfectly well with one another and Wolves and coyotes obviously didn't wipe out elk or bighorn sheep or pronghorns or mule deer. I mean, that didn't seem to occur. The first instance I've actually found where an American biologist says something like that is when Aldo Leopold is reviewing a book, the E.A. Goldman Stanley Young volume on the wolves of America, and Young and Goldman are both... Uh, members of the government bureaucracy, the biological survey that has taken on the task of of controlling or wiping out predators. And finally, Elder Leopold reviews their book, which comes out in the late 1930s and says, you know, it doesn't seem to have occurred to these guys that all these animals coexisted with one another for hundreds of thousands of years before we ever got here. It's like Europeans arrived and decided, okay, we're going to we're going to fix North America. And the way we're going to fix it is we're going to make it look like the Europe that we knew where there were no predators. And so we're going to wipe all these animals out. And so they, with poison in particular, they they are quite successful. This government agency, the Bureau of Biological Survey, with the support of the livestock associations, uh, with state bounties, the support of uh, state agencies that offer bounties to people for killing predators. With all of these efforts in combination, I mean, we managed pretty much to take gray wolves out of the lower 48 in the space of about 25 or 30 years. I mean, I I include a statistic in the book describing the territory and then state of Montana and In Montana, in the 1880s, when it's still a territory, it's spending two-thirds of its territorial budget paying bounties on coyotes, wolves, lions, and bears. Two-thirds of its budget to run the whole territory goes towards that one particular goal. And when that's in place... Montana is bountying something like in the late 1880s, 30,000 gray wolves a year are being bountied in Montana. By 1920, the number of wolves that are still being bountied in Montana has dropped to about 16 or 17 animals a year. So from the 1880s basically to 1920, using Montana as an example, Using poison primarily, we are able to take out the wolf population in North America. Now, what these state agencies and what the Bureau of Biological Survey ultimately discovers in the 1920s is that, and again, we can use the Montana example as an instance of this. In the 1880s in Montana, they're bountying 30,000 coyotes in addition to 30,000 wolves every year. By 1920, when only 17 gray wolves are bountied in Montana, the number of coyotes bountied is still 30,000. And so that's what causes the biological survey. Once they think they have the wolf situation taken care of in the 1920s to suddenly decide, you know, it seems to us that we've kind of misdirected our whole campaign it looks as if it was the coyote that was the arch predator of our time all along. And so we're now going to turn all of our efforts towards wiping out coyotes. And I mean, they managed to get, the Biological Survey manages to get Congress in 1931 to actually pass an act called the Animal Damage Control Act, which is designed specifically to exterminate coyotes in North America. Congress gives the biological survey $10 million to completely exterminate coyotes over a period they think they can do it in about a 10 year span of time. And so, as I argue, I mean, this is a, it's not often you can find a government that absolutely fingers a particular species for complete extermination. But we do it in the United States starting in the 1930s. And uh, I mean, and we carry it on from basically the, when wolves began to disappear in the mid twenties, from that point, we concentrate on coyotes. And this goes just as hard as we can make it go in the United States until 1972. So it goes for more than a half a century of out-and-out absolute warfare to wipe these animals off the face of the planet.
0: And, And this effort to kill coyotes is not over, even though it seems there is ample evidence that it does not, in fact, succeed in the one obvious goal, which is, you know, to protect sheep and sheep farming and things like that coyotes, because of their biology, and that's something that we should talk about as well, they rebound and are very clever in finding ways to survive in spite of these drastic efforts to kill them. But this continues today. Is that correct?
1: It does continue today, yes. Uh, the, The agency, the federal agency that was involved in this campaign still exists. It's called Wildlife Services today. It's still has largely one constituency, which is the livestock community, and particularly sheep ranchers in the West, even though the sheep industry in the United States has dropped to like 5% of what it was 75 years ago, uh, because other parts of the world have been raising lambs and, and sheep. And so they've sort of replaced the United States as a major exporter of wool. But Wildlife Services still does it. They still kill something like 80,000, to 80,000 coyotes a year on behalf of the livestock industry. And uh, so, yeah, we, we still do it. I mean, some sources argue that if you combine the almost 100,000 animals that Wildlife Services, the federal agency still kills every year with state uh, I mean, there are still states that have bounties on coyotes. The state of Utah, for example, has a fifty-dollar bounty on coyotes, and plenty of people largely kind of converted. I I argue in the book from the public relations campaign that the biological survey ran all during the thirties, forties, and fifties. I mean, they were very good at convincing generations of Americans that Americans that coyotes were absolutely worthless animals that should be shot or killed on site. And as a result of that, I mean, we still have a lot of people in the country who react to seeing a coyote by reaching for a gun or a trap and trying to kill it just without any kind of thought. I mean, one of the reasons I wrote Coyote America is because I realized that with the coyotes' response to this campaign, which as we all know now, has been, I mean, they've, and I'll describe in a minute why they've been so successful, but they've been so successful at enduring everything we could throw at them that they have now spread out of the West across the entire United States. They colonized their 49th state, Delaware, in 2011, and the only state they're not in in the United States is Hawaii. And they're arranged, they've become the first mammal since the Pleistocene To colonize out of North America into South America. And one of the reasons, the primary reason they've done so is because of this campaign to try to exterminate them, which produces a colonizing response on their part. But I mean, the whole idea of this animal surviving this kind of campaign is one of the things that made writing this book attractive to me because it's for one thing, I knew that there were people all over the country who were seeing coyotes for the first time and wouldn't have any idea what they should think about these animals showing up or what they should think about coyotes in general. But for another thing, this is a this is the opposite of our usual environmental stories. Our usual environmental stories have bad endings. This is an instance where for this particular animal, no matter what we've tried, I mean, resistance is futile. They are too well adapted, too smart, and have too many evolutionary strategies that mirror those of our own, in fact, and and mirror our own success as a species that, I mean, you can't really take them out. So the only thing to do is to learn how to live with them. And that became one of the the goads for writing Coyote America is to show people, okay, we've now got this small wolf living amongst us, trotting down the streets of our suburbs, uh, waltzing through our backyards. There's nothing you can do about this other than to learn to enjoy it. And that's something that Americans struggle with a little bit, you know. I mean that's what Herman Melville was writing about in Moby Dick was a New Englander, an American being driven mad by his inability to to control nature in the form of a great white whale. And it's something that we're going to have to have to deal with because uh, resistance is futile. We just have to learn how to live with them and enjoy having them in our midst.
0: Yeah, I have to say I've been surprised by people's reaction to coyotes because my encounters with coyotes have been primarily in California, in rural California I don't know, maybe I didn't encounter the right people, but the, the idea that they were an animal to be feared was just not in the air. You know, for one thing, rattlesnakes posed more of a threat and, and other animals. But I live now in Westchester County, north of New York City, and people have started seeing the coyotes more recently, which is interesting. It's sort of an interesting phenomenon because they've obviously been here for a while, but for whatever reason, they become more visible. And I was really taken aback by how frightened a lot of people were. But but as you say, you know, whether, whether we like it or not, coexistence is the way to go. Um, we had a coyote presentation recently, and one of the slides was, you know, if you like coyotes, the thing to do is to teach coyotes to fear humans. If you don't like coyotes, the thing to do is to teach coyotes <laughs> to fear humans, you know? So that's exactly what. Yeah. yeah, but these, these biologists who are involved with it's called wildlife services, right? The, the highly ironic it is, yes. uh, right. uh, name that they've given themselves. They must know at this point that, that there's something futile in this endeavor. So what motivates this, continued killing. Is it political? Is it cultural? Yes. Anything?
1: I think I think well, it's, it's ideological, really. Uh, it, it's an act of political ideology to keep doing this because, uh, I mean, as you know, in the course of the research for Coyote America, I went to the Predator Research Facility, which is the successor, by the way, to the original laboratory that the Bureau of Biological Survey had set up, which was called the Eradication Methods Lab. And now they have a successor to it that's called the Predator Research Facility. It's in Utah, and so I went and talked to the director of that laboratory. Uh, they have a hundred coyotes there on the premises that they're endlessly doing studies of and, and performing experiments with. And I had conversations with uh, the scientists there about this very fact because they know very they know well this particular research facility, the predator research facility was built by a, a biologist named Fred Knowlton. And Fred Knowlton and a, a fellow, a biologist named Guy Connolly, were the ones who did the original study back in the late 1950s that caused all of us who were paying attention to the science to realize how futile it is to try to take coyotes out. And the study they did was called The Coyote's Response to Harassment and Persecution. And what they ultimately discovered was that because coyotes had evolved, co-evolved, alongside larger wolf canids, and were often harassed, chased, persecuted, had their pups killed by bigger canids, coyotes had evolved a series of evolutionary adaptations to survive that kind of harassment and persecution. And when wolves were finally extirpated across the lower 48 in the 1920s, and we humans began substituting our own harassment and poisoning campaigns and attempting to fly coyotes down with airplanes and helicopters and kill them. Coyotes simply employed those same evolutionary stratagems in order to keep humans from wiping them out. And the primary one that is, I think kind of at the, at the nexus of why coyotes are such survivors happens to be an evolutionary strategy that is one that we humans also share. Only a few mammals around the world, fewer than 20, share an evolutionary adaptation called fission fusion. And what that describes is an animal's ability to exist both as a pack animal in the case of coyotes or in the case of human beings as a social animal living in social groups, living in villages and communities, or in the case of both humans and coyotes to survive as a fission animal. The fusion part is where you exist as a social animal or as a pack. And in the case of coyotes, when you go into fission mode, what that describes is the ability of coyotes to function outside a pack and to function as singles and pairs. And when they're harassed and persecuted, they tend to go into fishing mode. And when they go into this, uh, this strategy of existence, where they're existing as singles or as pairs, they tend to colonize across the landscape. What Knowlton and Connolly finally determined, and these scientists in Utah who I interviewed, they knew this very well. Knowlton and Connolly finally argued in their landmark study of how coyotes respond to this kind of harassment, that you could take out 70% of the coyote population year after year after year. In other words, seven out of every 10 animals you could kill and it would not affect their population demographics.
0: In the next episode, we're going to continue our investigation of coyotes. I'll be talking to biologist Chris Nagy of the Gotham Coyote Project, which studies coyotes' incursion into one of the last coyote frontiers, New York City. In the meantime, if you're enjoying the podcast and want to help me out, please write a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and tell a friend to check out the In the Weeds podcast. Thanks.